welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And if you have any questions or thoughts for me, you can find my contact information there as well. Well, hello, everyone. How are you all doing? I hope you're doing okay as this pandemic drags on and on. Ah, Well, today on the podcast, we have James O'Donovan. He's joining us from Ireland, and I love that we have an international guest today. I want to do more overseas and out-of-the-U.S. guests, so if anyone has any suggestions, let me know. It's, I think, one of the real benefits of the online activism world and how we have moved been forced really to move our activism online. But I think it's good because we're not limited to just the people in our area working on issues. And we aren't spending money on travel and greenhouse gas admissions. So uh, so I would just love to have more international guests on. And I will be having someone on from London soon, uh, at the end of this month, I believe. So James is an expert on the environmental impact of animal agriculture, and there's just so much to learn still in this realm. There's an important conversation happening now around government subsidies of animal ag and how this is, it's really undermining our efforts with our, you know, one-on-one vegan conversion and supply and demand strategy that so many of us are working on, so many of us have put our effort into. There was a recent report from the Food and Land Use Coalition, and they found that globally, Governments give a million dollars a minute to subsidize farming. One million dollars every minute goes to farming subsidies, and of course, most of that is animal agriculture. And in 2019, the Trump administration gave $16 billion in subsidies to U.S. farmers, and that was about twice the amount that farmers were predicted to lose that year. So there's so much to this story, and James knows a lot about it. Also, in the environmental community, we're hearing so much about regenerative animal agriculture. And I had Dr. Tushar Mehta on the podcast recently. His was episode 27, and it was a very popular episode. So I believe that listeners, you really want to know about this, to learn about this. So I'm wanting to continue these conversations with James. And of course, this regenerative animal agriculture is very new and so popular right now that we really need to learn about it. We need to learn more, hone our skills when we're talking about it. It's what's going to come up in environmental spaces and in conversations. This myth that we can just change the way that we're farming animals, tweak the situation, put the animals uh, onto pasture and out of the confinement buildings and all the environmental impacts will not only be neutralized but somehow transformed to be beneficial to the planet. So we really need to learn how to counter these falsehoods. So we're going to jump into this very important conversation with James right now. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I want to introduce our guest now. We have James Donovan with us today, and he's joining us from Ireland. He became vegetarian in 1991 after reading John Robbins' book, Diet for New America, which changed many of us uh, to vegan or vegetarian back in the 80s and 90s. And he went vegan in 2011. He holds a civil engineer degree, and in 2003, he completed his master's in holistic science at Schumacher College in Devon. And Schumacher is one of the leading centers for sustainability in the UK. And James is currently the chair of the Cork Environmental Forum and is a member of the Cork Food Policy Council. In 2015, he set up the online magazine Vegan Sustainability with Bronwyn Slater and it's vegansustainability.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that website. James also works as a volunteer helping to run Vipassana meditation retreats in Ireland and Europe. So thank you so much for joining us, James. Thanks, Hope. I'm delighted to be here today. All right. So I want to know why and when you went vegan. We heard a little bit about it in the intro, but give us some more details and what also got you started in animal advocacy. I was actually, I was educated in Ireland, but worked in London and then went to work in the US. So I was living in San Francisco. And then there was a lot of kind of social justice movements there. I remember there was United Farm Workers movement were having a great boycott. And there was also just a huge amount. There was really good um, organic natural food stores in the city. And there was a lot of information around health. But then I, I read that, that was, John That was Robbins. back in about the 90s. Yeah, or yeah, I went there in the 89, 89, 90s. Yeah. Um, and oh, were you there for the big earthquake in 89? I just got there about 10 days after. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I started working actually in the Marina District uh, with the city of San Francisco, just doing the repairs and so on oh, uh, wow. on the roads okay. and sewers after that, yeah. And then was reading uh, John Robbins' book. So that was, a, that was a big eye-opener. But I was also getting interested in just spending more time in nature and also getting interested in the kind of the philosophy of yoga at that time. And then in 1992, there was a kind of a, a, a union of an alliance of scientists issued a first warning. And it was signed kind of by 1,700 scientists, including the majority of the living Nobel laureates at the time, declaring that, that our species was pushing Earth's ecosystems beyond their capacities to support life. So that really resonated with me. I also understood that a lot of, obviously a lot of our behavior and how we relate to other species is based on our own perceptions, our misperceptions, and so I became more interested in personal development and, med and meditation and studying and got interested more in reading the Buddhist teachings. And that led me then later on to come back to doing, I, I worked in South Africa for several years doing work in water and sanitation. And in South Africa, you could see massively the environmental impact of overgrazing Literally, you'd see, you know, huge deep gullies and land being just completely washed away from overgrazing. And so I did my master's in the UK and then was started going a bit more into then the impacts of animal agriculture. 
And I think today, even though there are kind of different arguments amongst farming advocates that we'll talk about, I think in environmentalists, certainly in Europe, there's a broad agreement amongst environmentalists in Europe, in environmentalists and the scientific community, that animal agriculture is by far the leading cause of environmental harm. So then, uh, after doing my master's, I, I, I was volunteering a lot, facilitating retreats. But then also, in my, I moved back to Ireland at that time. And then I was uh, starting to do, provide training to local communities around Cork City and County, specifically on sustainable food systems, plant-based food systems, and transitioning. And uh, I was fortunate to meet Bronwyn Slater. She had already set up the website, The Irish Vegan. And um, so we were trying different initiatives. And then eventually we settled on the idea to start the magazine, uh, Vegan Sustainability. So we've been doing that kind of just putting together peer-reviewed research into the impacts of animal agriculture and the benefits of plant-based agriculture. And we also sometimes highlight, have some articles from different groups that we put in there. And then more recently, we set up a, a lobbying group called Nation Nature Rising, which is working to try and redirect the agricultural subsidies in Ireland from animal agriculture to ecosystem restoration and plant-based agriculture. So the environmental impact of animal agriculture, and I know this is one of your main focuses, it's becoming much more well-known. And while you know it used to be kind of a secondary or a peripheral reason to be vegan, now a lot of young people, it's their main reason for being vegan, which is really wonderful. And I love that that connection is happening now more and more. Uh, so tell us more about the harmful impacts of animal agriculture on the planet. Like over the last 10 years, our understanding of the impacts of animal agriculture has become much more well-established. A number of different kind of concepts have helped that. One of them is what's called now called Earth System Science, but that was started by James Lovelock with his Gaia hypothesis, and he just recognized that biodiversity and the soils and rock, the ina inanimate surface of the planet, form one integrated system. And when biodiversity is impacted, then this whole living system is impacted. So that manifests, for example, the climate system is one example of a system that's regulated by temperature and gases like carbon dioxide. Living organisms play a huge role in climate regulation. One of the key reports that documents the impact of animal agriculture is the World Wildlife Fund for Nature Living Planet Report. So they put that out every two years with the London Zoological Society, and it assesses the impacts on biodiversity. And from 1970 to 2015, the populations of species around the planet, birds, fishes, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, has dropped by 60%. So the next report is going to come out. So this is substantially declining each year. And they identified five main impacts, five, five main drivers and causes of biodiversity loss. So their habitat degradation or habitat loss, 
which just means basically converting ecosystems into agricultural systems. Exploitation, which is fishing and hunting. Hunting is a huge impact in many, um, in many countries. Invasive species and disease. Pollution is the fourth one, and climate change is the fifth one. But what they, in their assessment, they showed that two-thirds to over 80% of the biodiversity loss is caused by agriculture, fishing, and hunting, and also trade in, in wildlife that would, would also be included in there. So by far the biggest impact on biodiversity is the food system. So now scientists, when they're looking at trying to solve issues around climate change, they're also looking to restore biodiversity. How much of those five things are related to animal agriculture? Getting a little bit more specific to animal agriculture with these problems that happen with loss of biodiversity and the loss of species. So if you, take, if you consider all the built-up areas, all the cities, all the towns, even all the playing fields, golf courses, all of that, all of airports, all of that combined just makes up about one and a half percent of the land surface, whereas agriculture makes up over 40% of the total planetary land surface, and animal agriculture makes up over 80% of the food system land area. So biodiversity loss is because we're occupying those ecosystems, and then the more intensive the agriculture the biodiversity can sometimes go to zero. So the biodiversity loss has gone to 100%. Mm. So then in the oceans also, like in the 1950s, mostly the fishing was happening just around the coastlines. But now only 13% of the oceans are free from the, from the impact of industrial fishing. And they're using you know, the latest basically kind of military radar equipment to, to, to search out and seek out new uh, fish species and they have to travel further and further away and again they're also dependent on subsidies in order to keep that industry afloat so you can see that agriculture on land is a major impact the other major impact is deforestation but in certain areas like in tropical areas of south america for example 80 percent of the deforestation is driven by beef and then after the land gets overworked often they transition into soy for a few years and then they move on and move deeper into the forest sometimes it's difficult to understand how inefficient animal agriculture is and in ireland for example the average wheat produced on a hectare of land which is about two and a half acres is over 10,200 10, kilograms per hectare. And the productivity of oats is 8,000, you know, eight tons. But on the same land area, you just produce about 260 kilograms of beef. So in, in terms of land area, you can feed 30 times more people on a plant-based food system than you can on a meat-based food system. So in other words, our food system footprint could be 30 times lower by transitioning to a wholly plant-based food system. Wow, yeah. 
So I know that a lot of environmentalists believe that we can just reform the current systems by reducing the number of animals per farm and things like rotational grazing for cows. And while these may be some improvements in some ways, things like rotational grazing and grass-fed and uh, these more supposedly sustainable ways of raising animals, uh, why are these still problematic? They're, they're problematic for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is just the inability to produce sufficient quantities of food. So the industrial agricultural system, lots of People in Europe and the US, for example, often were told that the reason we need this system is because it's so productive. You know, that's often a very common argument used. But it turns out that 70% of the food that people eat in the world is produced by small farmers using just a quarter of the resources. And industrial agriculture, our animal agriculture, occupies 70 to 75 percent of the land, the water, and so forth, but it's only producing actually 20 percent of the of the food calories. Um, so that's one reason. So did Another you the, the, uh, the smaller ones are are plant farmers? Is that what you mean? I'm, they're I'm, mostly plant. They're right. mostly plant farmers because right. most, if you if you consider you know food systems like in Ethiopia, it's based around lentils like for example the famous milpa system in the americas was based around corn beans and squash so in india you've got hundreds of different types of legumes as well as actually thousands you know as well as thousands of different varieties of basmati rice so these farmers working in these areas over centuries and thousands of years they cultivated these seeds Another aspect of the food system is that some t- now Western companies, for example, they're effectively taking this seed, you know, which is kind of, if you want to use the language that these companies use, it's the intellectual property rights of these small farmers. But these companies are taking that, you know, seed that they've developed, and then they're genetically modifying it and patenting it and selling it back to the very same farmers. Whereas traditionally, these farmers, understanding life was sacred, they saved seed and exchanged it in a gift economy. So it was a very, very different way of farming, but it was a very sensitive to the local conditions, whether the soil was a little bit more salty, whether it was drought, whether it was south-facing, north-facing. So all of these crops evolved and humans have co-evolved with these crops over time. So we're very much suited to a plant-based food system. Also, just to get back to your question, sometimes people say that, like obviously there was this famous TED talk by Alan Savory saying he was proposing that you could reverse climate change through grazing. Right. Um, in the UK, there's the Oxford, a different Oxford University has set up a food and climate research network. And in 2017, they produced a report called Grazed and Confused. It's a peer-reviewed report and it's a detailed report. And their conclusions are that grazing livestock, even in a best case scenario, are net contributors to the climate problem, as are all livestock. And good grazing management. What what does net contributor mean? 
it means that while some carbon is sequestered to the soil, the amount of methane and carbon dioxide emitted is greater than the amount sequestered. Right. And there is actually a very nice YouTube eight-minute video showing the research. If you, if you search Grazed and Confused, you can find uh, their conclusions on that. Great. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I've, I, it's very important that environmentalists realize that it's, it's kind of what they want to believe, <laughs> you know, that, that we can have our meat and eat it too, that we can find a different way to do it. But the science is really solid. There's no real peer review science that says that, uh, you know, the rotational grazing, these, these new grazing methods are any better. And in fact, there's a lot of science that says that they are just as bad, if not worse. So yeah, it's, it's really important uh, for environmentalists to realize that. And then I'll also add that ultimately, these are sentient beings we are talking about. These are animals that we're talking about. And we need to start thinking broader and thinking of this as a justice issue for them as well. Connecting the environmental is so important, but in the end, we need to not kill sentient beings for our own unnecessary pleasures of meat eating. So so just finding a new way to do it, the animals are still being slaughtered in brutal ways. So Sometimes purely from a sustainability point of view, like if your stocking density is low enough, and you keep your you don't so you're not allowing overgrazing still it is going to have climate impacts you know but if you just focus a lot of people in the regenerative agriculture movement are saying they're focusing on the importance of building up soils but if you have a regenerative you can have a regenerative vegan agricultural movement and you get much much more food from the land area uh, Vandana Shiva is a, an environmental activist and, and she recognizes that veganism has the smallest environmental footprint. In their food systems in India, the social system in India is very, very different in every different country. But from a European and a North American context, we want to move to more biodiverse agricultural systems, more varied systems, silvopastoral systems with where we're integrating trees, you know, fruit and nut bearing trees with other crops and uh, vegetable production. And fortunately, there's ecosystem benefits, there's health benefits, and there's also substantial economic benefits. So we have talked about agricultural subsidies on this podcast before with Connie Spence, but I think it's such an important aspect of uh, animal activism and it doesn't get enough attention. It's not well understood. It can be very complicated. So James, help us to understand what are subsidies and how are they helping to really insulate and protect animal farmers and animal farming even with consumer demand dropping. Subsidies are really why a cheeseburger can cost considerably less than fruit. Why is that? So in Europe and in the US, there are large government subsidies paid to farmers. In Europe, the subsidies are paid based on the size of the farm. So every farmer has to submit the map of their land and the land area and then they get the payments so for example 
70% of the farmers in Ireland are sheep and beef farmers and most of the remainder are dairy farmers. And so tillage and horticulture in Ireland uh, occupies just a tiny space and most of the tillage is for actually growing barley and wheat for animal feed. But those beef and sheep farmers, they actually run their business over the course of a year at a loss. So they don't make any money. So beef farmers in Ireland make approximately minus 100 to minus 150 euros per hectare of land. Wow. But they get a payment of about 14 to 15,000 euros per year. And they run their business at a loss of about 5,000 and they end up with a family farm income of just about 8,000 euros. Hmm. Now, if you're unemployed in Ireland, you get a payment of 10,000 euros. So, so these farmers are economically, you know, so lots of these farmers are even going to, you know, there's large protests in Ireland because these farmers economically aren't making any money. And on, uh, to compare with that, there's a two hectare plant organic plant-based farm in North Cork here, and they're growing small, you know, small kale, um, rocket, spinach for um, salad leaves. And so they're what, I'm sorry, to, what kind of, they're, they're growing what? I think it's different. For, so kale and spinach, but they're just different kinds. We, I don't think we have rocket spinach. Oh, it's just interesting. Do you, you, do you, do you, do you have rocket? Ro oh, oh, this is, a, I thought you meant rocket spinach. No. No. <laughs> rocket. Do you have rocket, do you? I'm not sure what you're saying. No, I think we've come to a, an interesting cultural uh, oh, difference yeah. here. <laughs> no, rocket is a type of food that's very popular here, actually. How funny. I've oh, never arugula, heard arugula, arugula. Arugula, that's what we call it. Okay, that's you call what it you call rocket. It. Fascinating. Okay, we, we yeah, learned yeah. something new here, uh, U.S. and listeners outside of, of Ireland. Go arugula Ireland. is rocket. Yeah. Okay, sorry, go ahead. And, that's okay. And so they're able to make, uh, they, they make 35,000 euros profit per hectare. So you have a beef farmer making minus 100 euros profit, and you've got a, a plant-based farmer making 35,000 euros profit. So that's one example. So the subsidy system in Europe has, you know, huge criticism from lots of different groups. But it, what it has done, it is favored consolidation of farmers so consolidation of farms it's eliminated an awful lot of small farmers and also the vast majority of the subsidies go towards meat and dairy production and so the, the consolidation is beneficial because you get paid per how much land you have so the more land you have yeah. the more you get paid yeah exactly so in ireland what it, the result is that 35% of the farmers are over 65, 5% are under 35, and most of the farmers, you know, there's a load of farmers who are 70, 75, and they're just, they're keeping on with the farm just, you know, because of the subsidy. If those farmers, what we're advocating for in Nature Rising is that if those farmers could be paid for ecosystem services, uh, instead of being, which would be you know, sequestering carbon, you know, protecting water sources and flood prevention, soil, building up soil. 
they could actually earn more money than if they're raising beef. And it would have a whole load of social benefits. So these subsidies all come from tax money, European tax money. And so it turns out that a third of the European budget is paid to 3% of the European population. So a third of the European budget goes to just 3% of the population. And 80% of those subsidies go to the richest 20%. So it's a very economically unjust system. To bring about change, you know, a, a lot of the history of our food systems come kind of from a colonial past, you know. So trying to understand the roots of that colonial past and then trying to shift systems in a new direction is one of the reasons why food systems are so sluggish to change, even when consumer demand is changing much more quickly. So tell us more about the colonial roots of the system and how that relates to what's happening now. From an environmental perspective, you know, often, certainly, I believe, coming out of Europe, amongst the scientists, the approach of scientists coming out of the kickoff of the Industrial Revolution in the UK, a lot of the uh, framing of it was how to dominate nature how to control nature and how to extract resources from nature. And that's mirrored in the agricultural system. A lot of my thinking, I have to say, has been influenced by the writings of Vandana Shiva and how she's analyzed food systems. So, for example, diverse ecological food systems, they deliver multiple things. Whereas if you look at a wheat field, It just has one type of seed over a huge area. What happens when you have a monoculture? Two things happen. Firstly, it's much easier for insects to get into the food. Whereas when you have a complex, diverse system, then all the different species are in balance. And then the farmers started to spray chemicals and pesticides. And of course, when you spray chemicals and pesticides, The farmers didn't understand that the whole life was another living ecosystem and those chemicals disrupted all that vital ecosystem that's making the soil and that's not only making the soil but it's in a symbiotic relationship with plants. Like plants for example, 40% of the sugars that plants produce, up to 40%, they send down to their roots and they release them as what's called exudates. So they're actually feeding bacteria and fungi in the soils. And those fungi in the soils are often even integrated even into the physical structure of the roots. And they're taking those exudates and at the same time, they're absorbing vital minerals from the soils and then making those minerals bioavailable to the plants. So that gives the plants a very robust immune system. When you have a healthy soil, the plant has a healthy immune system. But when the farmers spread the pesticides, then that undermined the plants, made them weaker. Also, there's a drop-off in nutrients in, in the plants. And then you have the fertilizers. So all of these things compound. There's that mindset in industrial plant-based agriculture. But what happened was they became... It, it does produce a huge tons of food as all these ecosystems got converted to agriculture 
they harnessed fossil fuels to produce more and more food. Then they had a huge problem. They didn't know what to do with the food. So then they decided to feed it to animals first. And that led to what some people call the meatification of people's diets. So you have a country like India where people consume four kilograms of meat per person per year. And you have a country like Ireland where people consume 100 kilograms per person per year. And in countries like Brazil and Argentina and the US, it's a little bit more. So you have that history. But when you move towards diverse ecological food systems, then you have multiple outputs. You have much more varied diets. So you're maintaining the biodiversity of the foods that we're eating. Ireland, you know, famously, it went down a very dangerous route of just growing one type of potato. Now, of course, the Irish, that's related to colonialism as well, because the Irish had been pushed off the best farmland, and the best farmland was being used to produce beef and dairy and export that to the UK. But now today, for example, in South America, you know, you have huge beef and soybean enterprises pushing indigenous people and small-scale farmers who are, again are mostly plant-based off the land in these incredibly inefficient systems. So in multiple ways, just not understanding how humans are related to natural systems, but then also the kind of the colonialism of land and then also the colonialism of seed is a big part of kind of the mindset. And then also the mindset of kind of seeing insects as a threat. You need to poison them. You need to go to war with insects. You need to go to war with this, that, and the other. So that mindset is much different when small farmers have intelligent plant-based systems. So I want to talk about the concept of speciesism. And I think that this is really an important concept to bring into our educational outreach. It evokes the justice part of the issue. Of course, speciesism is the you know, false impression that one species is dominant over all the others. In this case, of course, we're talking about humans being dominant over all the other animals on the planet. And I think that the eventual legislation that we want to see to truly protect all animals is going to be based on the science of sentience or simply understanding that animals suffer and both psychologically and physically. And I think that speciesism is a really important part of that. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? So like we were just speaking there about colonialism and and kind of the 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 history of colonialism so the european history really is european colonizers when they went to countries there was huge impacts on the people in those countries and you know there was a conceit or an arrogance in european culture that saw themselves even though they were committing acts of violence they presented themselves as better than others um, I don't know, was that a defense mechanism to kind of hide all the harmful actions they were doing or just a deluded belief that they had? You know, like if you look at Buddhism, in the five precepts that they have, the basic ethical framework is not to kill other living beings. You know, so there's a, there's a widening of the circle of compassion. And then if you look at indigenous cultures, for example, sometimes they speak about other species as our relatives. And that's, it turns out that that's a much more 
scientifically accurate way of speaking about the web of life rather than the the mistaken way of human beings somehow being at the pinnacle of evolution so speciesism there's been you know declarations by scientists that animals have consciousness but if you if you go back in the history of scientists like some of the statements of scientists like descartes were so kind of deluded it's hard it, it, it's it's hard to think that they were leading scientists at the time because they were saying there was the belief that animals didn't have a soul they didn't even have feeling at the time how they could make those statements when the evidence in front of them was so obvious is is it points to the fact that human beings have a remarkable capacity not to see things if you asked a group of people who here would hurt an animal unnecessarily then almost nobody is going to put their hand up and yet when we look at meat then we don't see we don't see the connection to an animal that's a misperception in itself you know but scientifically we know the very same receptors for the hormones that transmit mes messages of pain animals have them anybody who interacts with an animal knows that there's a living intelligence there that is similar to our intelligence the, one of the key things that will cause us to change is just the philosophical opinions that animal agriculture is based on don't correlate with reality as we kind of start to see animals more clearly we'll have to change it just creates that internal dissonance and that's one of the things people realize but somehow you know it, it, it's a complex thing for that to arise if we had a magic button that we could just make everybody see things clearly then we'd be sorted yeah definitely so James, you help facilitate uh, Vipassana meditation retreats, which is a form of Buddhist meditation. Tell us a little about how and why you got into this form of meditation, and also how does it or, or does it relate to your veganism and your activism? Uh, tell us a little about this. I, I was in the US and I was teaching yoga at that time and still working, but then I decided to spend about, uh, I spent about a year and a half at an ashram over there teaching yoga and helping to run the center. But then I was going back to Ireland. I decided to go back to Ireland for a year. Um, and two friends of mine, um, David Lorig and Jocelyn Bates, they told me about, they had done Vipassana. One of the key things that people need to do is engage in a process of personal development you know in order to it, it helps us understand human systems what motivates us you know so i wanted to develop self-understanding i suppose i had been influenced by reading gandhi and also seeing how effective the movement of nonviolence was in kind of shifting the british colonial system out of india nonviolence and compassion is a way for us to transition out of a violent food system to a much healthier and uh, ecologically sustainable food system so in the buddhist teaching the buddhist teaching you know is it's it's different to buddhism you know catholic priests sit courses here in ireland you know you could have no religion and, and still do the practice and it's just basically an ethical way of living that contributes to social and environmental harmony through emotional cultivation, basically. And there is a framework 
of just understanding human motivations and how we can be dominated by greed or how we can dominated by conceit or anger or violence and then you know those actions then don't bring results that are that are beneficial you know to ourselves our others so 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 then you move from at least trying not to hurt or harm other living beings and then also you're actively trying to help and be of benefit to other living beings so for me personally that's a very i find it a a delightful framework you know for approaching life the vast majority of people who practice vipassana they're working as householders in different ways you know raising families and so forth and at the same time you know trying to live with more awareness and trying to understand kind of these cause and effects relationships of our actions very nice yeah that's wonderful i appreciate that and uh, think that having some kind of a meditation or spiritual practice is really good for people that that need it that have concerns about the world or anxiety around what's happening to the planet and the animals a meditation practice in some way can be very beneficial and it doesn't necessarily have to be sitting on the cushion it could be numerous different things uh, for me i like walking meditation being out in nature so there's lots of different ways to not only to calm ourselves and, and try to ease the anxiety of the intensity of what's happening to this planet and all of the animals, but also bring awareness and strength into our daily lives uh, so that we can connect more fully uh, with the animals, with the planet, and, uh, and help. Yeah, and you know, it, you, you have to keep watching what you're doing in from moment to moment how you speak your actions you have to look at your actions and make sure that they're not causing suffering to others so that's a key thing for people so people will do that in multiple different ways and it'll manifest in different ways in people's lives yeah it's true and i mean just being vegan is bringing a mindfulness and an awareness into your daily life when you're shopping you know having to be very aware that you're not going to exploit animals in your purchases you know so it's it's really bringing a mindfulness uh, and an awareness into your daily life to be more compassionate. That's one thing I love about veganism. Uh, absolutely. Veganism embodies loads of skillful qualities. Like when you look at the world, you know, there's lots of distressing things happening. And then you have to do some work also not to get stuck in anger, you know, because then... Right, or, or distress or anxiety, yeah. Or despair, you know, mm -hmm. like... Sometimes people, when they uh, see an awful lot of environmental issues, environmental problems are animal rights problems, they can shut down by saying, we're doomed. <laughs> or sometimes people shut down by saying, you know, there's no problem, you know, everything's fine. And in both of those kind of beliefs, you don't have to do anything. But when you see that there is, you know, a lot of individual animals suffering, when naturally we're calm, then naturally we want to try to reduce that suffering. So certainly, you know, veganism is a framework. And also veganism, there is an opportunity in the food system to really alleviate the suffering, both of billions 
of animals, trillions of fish, as well as trillions of wildlife, just by making this shift. So that's one of the key reasons why I focus on veganism, because it's ethically rooted, but also there is a clear way to change, and the change brings so many benefits, it's remarkable. And it's even good for our health, <laughs> which is quite, you know, it, it really is astonishing. You yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, it's true. I've thought about it that, you know, even if vegan wasn't good for me, I would still do it. But how beautiful that it is so much better for our bodies and, and for our health. It just makes it seem so holistic and connected. And of course, it's the right thing to do. And it's also just nature We've emerged from nature. We're a part of nature. And when we live in harmony with nature, it optimizes our potential. But we get shut down by fear or by greed for power or whatever, our wealth, or just trying to dominate. And that blocks our potential then in many different ways. So we do need to wrap it up here. And I thank you so much, James, for being with us. I want to ask you one last question. What do you see a post-pandemic vegan world looking like? Uh, what do you hope to see for the future? Uh, you know, what gives you hope? A way that I look at it is that we have a climate and biodiversity and justice emergency. And the word emergency, you know, that means we, 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 we do need to respond rapidly. So I think educating ourselves about the causes of this emergency and then trying to develop just an understanding of how these different systems interact and then trying to connect and collaborate with diverse people, different movements on the basis of this understanding is going to be key. Building powerful coalitions, you know, with indigenous people, with, you know, the remarkable movement inspired the Fridays for Future with Greta Thunberg. You know, there's a lot of lessons from the civil rights movement in the US. Martin Luther King and the entire movement, all those, you know, men and women who were involved there, they were able to grab enough political power to get the civil rights legislation passed, the voter rights legislation passed. And that did change the reality for a lot of African Americans in the US. Now, we know, of course, you know, if you look at a film like the 13th Amendment, you can see that the, the beliefs in racism, they've continued, and sometimes they get locked into a culture of racism there. So we need to understand how the systems work. But communicating skillfully and just building a vision of what the future can be like, you know, Martin Luther King, he never said, I have a nightmare. You know, he said, I have a dream. The dream was we ha we're going to be together. You know, the Martin Luther King called it a beloved community. So we need to move to a beloved community Plant-based agriculture, moving to a plant-based agriculture is a no-brainer. I mean, I didn't even touch things like the use of antibiotics or, you know, how, you know, plant-based food system and nature-based solutions is the biggest thing for reversing climate change. So there's so many multiple aspects to 
the benefits of a vegan movement. Thank you so much, James, for joining us over in Ireland. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks very much, Hope. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat and, um, uh, and look forward to listening to many more of your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something. I know that I did. Please help us to get this important information to more listeners and share this content. Give us a good rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I know that the regenerative animal agriculture issue can be super frustrating, and it it frustrates me, but looking at the bigger picture, I'm actually really hopeful. I'm I'm so happy that the message of the eco-impacts of animal products is getting out there. More and more people are avoiding animal products for environmental reasons, where it used to kind of just be this added benefit of going vegan. Now there's young people where that's their number one issue, their number one reason for being vegan. So we've come a long way with this messaging, and I'm really hopeful that people will realize what an incredible opportunity veganism is for the planet. Of all the solutions for climate disruption— a global shift to a vegan diet, it, it wouldn't require a ton of money or infrastructure change or government involvement. It just takes making different decisions at the store, different decisions at the restaurant. It, it could happen overnight and we could make such a huge difference just by choosing more healthy plant-based options we could really reduce our impact on this planet. And it is happening overnight. It feels like just in the last 10 years or so, the momentum is just strong. And we are, we're moving in the right direction. So be part of that movement towards a climate-stable future and live vegan.